So this is Lesson 7. We're in our, our series, again, on Hosea, and we're going to try to cover th- uh, Chapter 4 today. Uh, what we've seen so far is this sort of a, a somewhat rapid-fire, uh, bad news, then good news presentation of what Hosea has uh, for us. Uh, that is to say that we hear of the judgment that will come to Israel for her sins and unfaithfulness, but then right behind that, we hear about God's gracious love and how he intends to restore Israel in the future. And so we have this just in the first three chapters. Uh, the first section of chapter 1, bad news, then immediately good news, then more bad news, then more good news. And then we have in chapter 3, the first four verses referring to more bad news. And then uh, ending with verse 5 of chapter 3, this is what we covered last week, uh, more good news. So this chapter 3 that we just uh, finished was it's, it's a short chapter, um, but it it would symbolically illustrate that the fidelity of the Lord will endure until His people finally uh, come home. And it's again we set a very unique chapter in that it so briefly, sort of clearly paints for us this complete picture of Israel's national history. And so we looked at it in this way. We kind of went through it in a in a, in a chronological way of a description of Israel's past, present, and in verse 5, their, their future. Now this morning we come to this major uh, division uh, beginning in chapter uh, 4. Uh, again, it's sort of helpful to keep this big picture in mind. And so as we start into chapter 4, there are really two things that, that change. So right here we have this, we just sort of divided the book. These are sort of the two, two major sections, the first being illustrative with the marriage of Hosea uh, and the example and how the Lord uses the, that example uh, of Hosea and his family and what's going on there to, to illustrate the way in which God is dealing uh, with them and plans to deal with, with Israel. Um, and then we see this sort of this, this major break or transition in the book beginning in chapter 4. And the two things that really change is we do go from this sort of private private pageant, if you will, this Hosea sort of living out this message in his own personal life uh, to uh, really his public preaching. And so you can think of it as, as two, if you want to, two episodes, episode one being a sermon acted out, and then episode two, really a sermon spoken, or you might think of it as an anthology of Hosea's uh, preaching uh, or his prophecies. So that's one of the things that, that changes, is it's this focus more in the first three chapters on the life of Hosea himself as a prophet, and then really the message that's coming, an explanation of that illustration uh, in, the, in the final uh, chapters, beginning in chapter 4. And then the second thing that really changes is the rhythm that is in these first three chapters, this bad news, good news, sort of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that really slows down. <laughs> so we're not going to have a chapter four uh, bad news or half of chapter four bad news and then the second half good news or chapter four bad news and chapter five good news. It's going to be a few weeks before we get some good news. And so we're, we're going to be in what you might consider to be some very some, some dark chapters for, for a while uh, before we see another meaningful or another lengthy description or declaration of God's faithful love and his promise uh, of redemption. But in the end, what we'll find is that this description of 
the darkness of, of what's going on in the nation of Israel and their sin and their rebellion, that's going to become the darkest of velvet by which, which, with which the Lord places this diamond of his grace in front of that so that it shines even brighter. And so by the time we get to this another round of substantial good news, then it's, uh, it's really going to be uh, a breath of fresh air. Uh, as we think about God's mercy in this, in this context. So chapter 4, um, and, and what we encounter here is the Lord acting in a sense as a, as you might, might think, as a prosecuting attorney uh, bringing an, an indictment against, or many indictments against his people. So it made me think about really the cr- criminal proceedings even in our own culture, because you can go from culture to culture in our own day, or you can go back 3,000 years to culture and society, but every society has a way of doing this. I mean, every society has a way of dealing with, with crime. Every society has a way of dealing with um, uh, rebellion on the part of its, of its people. And so this is sort of how it plays out. And again, this is in our context, but there's, there's a lot of similarities between this and, and what's going on even in, in Israel at this time. Uh, as, for, as far as the concepts... Um, this is what happens when in, in our day and age, when we have a, a crime that has been committed, then what normally happens is you have an investigation of some kind. Uh, and so you have a review by either law enforcement or a review by, uh, it could be in some cases a grand jury or it could be a district attorney, but basically looking at the, get, gathering information and then determining if there are going to be any formal charges that are going to be filed. And so you'll have a detective or something like that look, look into this, interview people, and gather that, the, that information so that they can make that, that determination. So there's an investigation. Then you have the indictment, which is a, the formal accusation of, of a particular crime based upon the probable cause. So the, so the investigation side of this, the research, is to determine probable cause. It's not to say that the person did it. It's just to say there's a, we have enough information to think that the crime might have this might have been committed by this person, and so they bring formal charges against that individual. And then you have an, what we call an arraignment, which is a, another formal proceeding uh, where that information or that indictment is read to the accused party or person, uh, and at that time the accused enters their plea. Right, so we, we've done some investigative work. We're bringing charges officially against this person. We have this arraignment, which whereby those charges are in a very formal setting, in a very formal way, are brought against the individual, and then the individual has to say, I'm, I, "I did that," or they plead not guilty. And then, depending on how that goes, if they enter a not guilty plea, then they enter into a trial. And again, this is a sort of over, in a way, oversimplifying. There's a lot of uh, smaller parts to this, but essentially a trial, either uh, court or by jury. And then you have from that uh, a uh, acquittal or a conviction, or in some cases a mistrial, which just repeats. So we just kind of go back uh, a couple steps. Um, and if there is a conviction, then we have what we call a sentencing. Um, of course, if you go to the arraignment and the plea is, is, a, is a guilty plea, then you don't go through the hassle of all of the, all of the trial trying to convict. If the person admits to it, then you skip a lot of that and just go to the sentencing. 
what we're going to see in Hosea is that out of a process like this, Hosea is honing in on this phase of indictment, of this formal, bringing these formal accusations against Israel. Um, and then Israel doesn't really have the opportunity, if you will, to say guilty or not guilty, right? Because the Lord, there's, there's, there is no escape, right? I mean, the Lord is the one that's bringing these charges. He knows all the facts, so he brings this evidence forward. He brings these charges forward uh, in a very clear and in a very compelling and a very authoritative way. And then we'll move to what we call a sentencing phase of what's going to come as a consequence. Um, and so it's interesting. So as you, as you go through this book, uh, Yahweh is sort of presented as this district attorney, if you will, but also presented as the one that's doing the sentencing and also presented as a judge and also presented as a parole board because there's going to be a time where Israel is going to um, uh, display what might, you might think are evidences of repentance, but of course the Lord knows if the repentance is genuine. And so what a parole board does is a parole board decides how a person is changing, right? I mean, their, their behavior, is it good behavior, bad behavior? Do we need to change the sentence, reduce the sentence? So that once the person's in jail, once the, the sentencing has come down, there's a time in which that person can sort of appeal. And then there's a parole board that looks at that and decides if, if, they, if there should be a, any sort of amendment uh, to that. And so the Lord's going to do that too. The Lord is going to look at Israel and assess Israel's repentance, and what we'll see is that it's it's not it's not not what we would hope for. And we'll actually talk about repentance, what repentance is, and and uh, what is what is false, what is true, uh, and biblical and God honoring uh, repentance. So in chapter four, we have this presentation of the Lord as this prosecuting attorney, indicting his people who have broken the law and violated the covenant. We get to chapter 5, we'll see the Lord as the judge and jury sentencing this criminal people. So chapter 4 begins, listen, which is a command to hear. It's the same word we'll see at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's not really directed towards just an individual or group, but it's a plural term uh, directed at a wider, a wider audience of all the people uh, in the northern a kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes, as well as uh, including and wrapped up into that a narrow, a narrow, more narrow audience of the priests and the kings. We'll see that some this morning. Uh, and it launches with that same court, that sort of law, that legal, that court language that's introduced back in chapter 2, verse 2, when we saw where uh, it says there, contend with your mother, contend. And it's this, it's this again, this idea of um, uh, this sort of legal uh, of bringing charges and those kinds of things. So we'll see this language kind of pop up here and there throughout the book. But here the Lord is more specifically cast as this prosecuting attorney leveling his indictments against Israel, and the indictments are irrefutable. Verse 1, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beast of the field 
and birds of, of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest, since you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity, and it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol and their diviners wand informs them for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains and burn incense on the hills, under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes, so the people without understanding are ruined. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal, Gilgal or go up to beth and take the oath as the Lord lives. Since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings, and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So I just want to walk through these verses as, as quickly uh, as we can. Uh, verse 1, so I mentioned here again, the Lord, uh, listen, he says basically, listen up, uh, sons of Israel, the Lord has a case against you. So this, this idea of the Lord having this thing against them. In fact, you could go through, and one of the things, if you, again, if you're a person that likes to mark in your Bible, you can look for all the places where it's something is done against the Lord. So you have these, this phrase, against the Lord and against his covenant, um, uh, and against these people. Um, that's something that's, that's a, a, a phrase that's used throughout the book, the people doing things against the Lord. In this case, the Lord has a case against them, and it's actually a preposition which conveys the idea of personal relationship. So it's not just a cold-hearted sort of, I have this against you. It's, again, we mentioned this whole issue of idolatry is a very personal thing with God. This is not just simply about breaking a rule. This is about violating a covenant relationship. So in some cases, this word, this preposition against is translated as with because of that idea of, of this, this, this sort of this context of personal relationship. So it's not the normal preposition you would have here, but it is really this heightening the fact that this suit being brought against them is very personal to the Lord, that they've done these things. So we have this intensity of relationship, that he has this against his people, and then the last part of the verse really demonstrates the credibility of the Lord's case. He says there, because of these things. Uh, because 
And he mentions several things. But it basically, if you were to sort of round this out, fill it out a little bit with its, with its meaning, and we'll go through what this is uh, in detail. But he basically is saying, I have this case to, against you because nowhere to be found among the people or throughout the land. There, there is, I have not found any truth or faithfulness. I have not found any loyalty, or you might say loyal love, or any knowledge which we know to be more than just head knowledge, right? So we're talking about an experiential knowledge, to know something, to know it intimately, to put it into practice. And so the Lord has not found Israel to have this experiential knowledge as evidenced by a due recognition of who he is. Okay, Those are the three things he brings against them. There is no faithfulness. Uh, it can be translated again as the word truth. There is no truth. Um, it's a term really found only here in Hosea, and it'll be something he'll come back to and address in chapters 11 to 13. There is no kindness, is what the New American Standard says, but you, you could think of it as loving kindness. It is this um, Hebrew term hesed, right, which we have looked at in, in, in other studies, but it is the word in the Old Testament for loyal love, which is why it's translated as loyalty, right? So there's no... No kindness. I'm just saying when you see kindness, you think of just treating someone in a kind way. But it's much deeper than that, okay? These people have not shown loyalty to the Lord or loyal love. That loyal love that he has for them because he is their covenant God, they have not shown that love, that kind of love for him in return. So there is no loyal love, no loyalty on the part of Israel. That will be something that we'll come back to in chapters 6 and 7. And then thirdly, he says there is no knowledge of God in the land. So there's this lack of knowledge or lack of true understanding of God among the people, which we'll see explained in chapters 4 today and into chapter uh, chapter 5. So there'll be a little bit of overlap, but, 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 but what basically he does here is he gives us these three things very specifically that are lacking among the people of Israel, and then he's going to address them in reverse order. So he gives them to us in a very compact way here. No faithfulness, no loving kindness, no knowledge of God. And then the first one that he takes on in chapters 4 and 5 is no knowledge of God. And then he comes and hits no Love, uh, no uh, loyal love or loyalty or loving kindness, and then he'll, in the latter part of the book, address the issue of truth and, uh, and, and or as I say, faith, MF is the Hebrew word, uh, faithfulness. So these are evidences of omissions. These are the things, when, when you look at sin in your life, sin takes two different forms. It can be, there can be sins of omission, which are things that are not in your life, that should be in your life, and then there are sins of commission, which are things that you should not, be, should not be in your life, but that are. Things that you should not do, but you have. And so he mentions in verse 1 these evidences of omissions, the things that he has looked for in his people but have not found. And then he gives us in verse 2 sins of commissions. These are the things that they've actually committed. Verse 2, there is swearing. And you just think, just think through the Ten Commandments okay, as you go through this little list here of how many of these, of these violations. Very obvious things. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed, bloodshed follows bloodshed. 
So all the th- all all these things that ha- that have been prohibited by the Mosaic covenant, and were warned, the people were warned about by the prophets that followed Moses. So he just lists these things out again. We're going to get more details about this um, as we go. But this is <laughs> when you read that verse, um, it, it's like it's 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 inescapable. It's like it, it, the Lord is not nitpicking. He's, he's not trying to piece a bunch of like, uh, like cloudy um, uh, evidences together to, to kind of make, it, make a case. Like he's connected all these dots. He's like, so now I can say about these people. I mean, he's listing these things like, there is no, there is no way you're going to be able to defend yourself against these accusations. And there's not just one. There's numerous, there are numerous things that they have done and then he answers this question of what happened or what, what, what does all this sin and this anarchy produce. Verse 3, therefore, the land itself mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the fields, birds, and fish of the sea. So we have this use of personification in which he says essentially the land, um, that, that is... The, uh, to represent all of the, the people, but he wraps in, right, this as if it's creation itself, the land that contains these faithless people is crying. And all of these things, beasts, birds, and fish, which kind of take you back to, when you read that verse, it kind of should make you go back to Genesis, think about creation, right? He's saying all these things, beasts, birds, and fish, which are outside of man, who is to serve as sort of vice regent over God's creation, that all of these things are groaning because of this apostasy that's taking place in Israel. So it sort of it reminds us of sort of Romans 8, where Paul's talking there about the, the groaning of creation because of the sin of man, Right? So because of the sin of man in Genesis 3 and the curse that was placed not only on man but on creation itself, it's as if creation is groaning because the creation is observing all of this sin. So there's this longing even in creation for redemption, Romans 8 tells us. It says whole creation groaning because of the sin of human beings. It's like you just think about that. You just think about, I mean, we don't normally think about creation in that way, right? I mean, we think, when we sin, we, we, we're usually not thinking about much but ourselves, right? We're thinking about ourselves. Sometimes when we sin, we're thinking about maybe the impact that our sin has on other people, right? But how, I mean, how many of you lately have thought about creation itself, right? Observing your sin and literally groaning because of your sin? or my sin, that, that our sin that we commit as children of God causes creation to long for the day, right, when God will restore all things. So that's, what, that's, what, that's what's being pictured here. And then this court language returns in verse 4, yet let no one find fault, let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Now, here's our example I mentioned earlier, because there's two ways in which this verse is translated, uh, two main ways in our English Bibles. Um, the NAS here is what I've read for you. Uh, the NIV is similar to the NAS. Let me read you what the, the, new, the new International Version says here. Uh, verse 4, But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges 
against a priest. Okay, so the people are, in, in that translation, the people are bringing the charges uh, against a priest. Some of you have the ESV. Let me read the ESV for you. ESV, verse 4 says, Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. So in the ESV, and this is, this is um, I think, probably more likely what's, what's going on here. In the ESV, it's as if the Lord is directly confronting the priest. It's not that the people are contending with the priest. It's that God himself is, is pointing the priest out. Okay? He is confronted. The priest is being confronted by God himself. So you have the New American Standard, the NIV, which are rendered probably more, more literally, but the ESV is likely paying attention to the next verse uh, in verse 5 and the reference when it says to also the prophet. So notice verse 5. So you will stumble by day and the prophet also, okay, so he's, the, the, the ESV translators are probably looking at verse 5 and saying, okay, this is not the people saying this to the priest. This is the Lord calling out the priest, and he's about to bring some, again, some indictments against the priest. And that's why he says, and also the prophet, right? So the Lord is saying, I'm going to address these two groups, right? I got a problem with the priest. I got a problem with the prophet. So you will stumble by day, the prophet also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you've rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest, since you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. So we have the prophets mentioned here, not the true prophets of God, but what would have been considered to be royal court prophets. So these are, these, are, these are people that, we're not talking about like Hosea. We're not talking about the prophets that would have been, we would consider to be tr- true prophets of God. These would have been people that were, were claiming to be that, right? Or they were, they were functioning in that way, at least from the, from the standpoint of, the, from the people's perspective. But these would have been people that could have been bought off, right? I mean, these are not people that were, these are not prophets that are true to the Lord, Right, So we have these false prophets, if you will, these weak prophets, not these God-appointed prophets. And then we have these priests who were also failing in their responsibilities. So we could go to uh, just another example of this, Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. Now this is, in, this is after the exile, um, but th- this is what the priest should have been doing in Malachi's day and in the days prior, such as Hosea's day. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7 says, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Preserving knowledge, that is true knowledge, or that is, we might even say, revelation from God. Right? This is truth from God. Their job is to preserve that. Right? Verse 7, and then the, the next part of that verse says, And men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So that's what should have been going on in, again, Malachi's day and in Hosea's day, is that these priests should have been preserving knowledge and the people should have been coming to those priests for instruction because he is the messenger of God. But he says in verse 8, But as for you, you have turned aside from the way, 
you have caused many to stumble by the instruction, and you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So there's, there's corruption going on, there's perversion going on, there's a twisting of God's truth going on, and by that they are causing the people to stumble. People are coming to them, and they're not getting the true message, right? They're getting a perverted message, a twisted message, um, and in that sense, they are being, uh, they are, they are stumbling over these things. And this is essentially what was going on even back in Hosea's lifetime: a, a rejecting of the knowledge of God and a misleading of the people. And then we have even more evidence here for this high-handed priestly apostasy. Verse seven: the more this is back in Hosea four. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like priests or like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but will not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. So here we see what the priests have done in God's response to all of this. They have... Essentially, it's an, the idea of stacking sin upon sin. So they have, they have piled up sin upon sin. They have an ascent, essentially, they have abused the system, right? So it's like the people are coming to them because of their sin, supposedly coming, but then the priests are using this, this, uh, if you will, this sort of reliance of the people on them, right? They're commanded to come to the priest for instruction, so they come. The priests know that they're coming, but then whatever the priests are doing, it's like they are, they are using this relationship, this system for their own advantage, right? And so they're causing the people to sin more, which is causing the people to do what? Come back to them more, right? And so it's just they, they, this this cycle of abuse that's going on in the priesthood, and then they have been an example to the people, which they're called to be, the priests, except in this case, they're a detrimental example for the people. And for those things, they will experience that sort of ricochet effect of their iniquity, right? Because he says there in verse 7, the more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. So the glory that the priest should have had as a representative for God is going to end up as nothing but shame on them. And, according to verse 10, God is going to frustrate their plans. Right? They're not going to find the satisfaction that they're looking for. It's going to be very similar to what we saw back in Hosea chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, as Israel played the harlot and were pursuing her lovers but could never really get what she was looking for. God's going to, to frustrate that because, it says here, they stopped giving heed to Yahweh God. And their senses will be dulled. They're going to go down this path, and as they go down that path of being intoxicated with their sin, they're, they're going to to lose their sensibilities about them. Verse 11, harlotry. I think that's what he's referring to here. Wine and new wine take away the understanding. That is to say that true understanding and knowledge will become increasingly unavailable to them. 
It's like they're going to be, at some point, they might even be looking for knowledge, but it's, they're, they're not going to be able to, to, to grasp these things because of the effect of their sin on them. And this is what happens, folks, is there is a, when you go down a path of sin, you lose your senses, right? You lose your ability to discern. You lose your ability to judge what is right and what is wrong, and you get, you get turned around and upside down. That's what, that's what happens when we pursue sin. And so this understanding is going to be taken away. You just have to keep in mind that they're culpable for that. So it's, it's like they're, they're causing this, right? It's like their sin is causing them to not have access to understanding and knowledge, but they're going to be culpable for not having the understanding and the knowledge, right? The Lord is, gonna, is going to hinder them from getting that, but the reason that whole thing is even happening is because of their own sin. So this rejection of God's authority and this rejection of God's revealed will begins with the leaders of Israel. But the people are also accountable for their idolatry. It says verse 12, My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviners one or diviners one informs them. So this, again, is about the absurdity of idolatry. You could look at this, and we'll probably go to some of these texts before we finish this, this study, but uh, we'll, Isaiah 44 and Jeremiah 10 talk about just the foolishness of idolatry. Habakkuk chapter 2, this is a more brief uh, description of it, but in Habakkuk 2, 18, says, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork, when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, and to a mute stone, Arise. And that is your teacher? <laughs> it's just saying, that's your teacher? That thing that you just carved out of wood or that you just carved out of stone, that's, that's the person that you're looking to for instruction and for wisdom? Behold, he says, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. So it's a lifeless thing. But in contrast, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Just saying, what are you doing? You know, you're making something. And that's where Jeremiah and Isaiah describe this. Of, you know, the, you t- the guy takes the wood, takes half the wood and uses it to start a fire to keep himself warm and then takes the other half of the wood and makes an idol out of it and bows down and worships it. He's like, just the absurdity of the whole thing. So we'll come back to that because idolatry is such a, such a theme throughout, throughout Hosea. In the middle of verse 12, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot, and your brides, or it could be translated as daughter, daughters-in-law, commit adultery. So this is, this is the exposure of idolatry in what characterized much of Israel's history. They would go to these worship sites that usually contained uh, an altar. This is an example of one that's just a mile from Shiloh, um, which is a city in, those, in, in, the, in the north. Uh, and this, this here particular one is just, a, you'll see this altar, this, uh, most of them would have these sort of four points. It actually is a, it's the, it, most of these altars, when they, when they find them, 
in, uh, in the ar- archaeological research, but in this particular one carved out of limestone. The, it's, it's, very, it's actually similar. They're, they're building these things according to the description given in, in, in the Pentateuch. <laughs> I mean, in the instructions that Moses was given about the, the tabernacle and the temple, uh, they're actually constructing these things to fit the dimensions of, of what was there. And some were on hills, uh, which is why the scriptures sometimes translate it as the high, they call them the high places, although they have found these things in valleys. So it's, it's, we typically assume because we see that phrase high places that all of them were on these mountaintops, but sometimes they were in cities, sometimes they were in valleys, but we do find them uh, on these higher locations, on hills uh, around Palestine, but not necessarily. So that is to say their essential feature is not the location. The location is not the issue or the height of it, but the function, the fact that this, this whole thing functioned as a site for cultic and religious purposes. So the problem wasn't the places themselves, but two things. One, these served as unacceptable uh, alternatives to worship, which by this time should have taken place at the temple in Jerusalem. Right? So that's one problem. One problem is that by this time, all the worship in Israel is to be directed to Jerusalem. Well, the, the ten tribes in the north have a problem, right? Because they don't have access to that. And so these became these sort of unacceptable substitutes for that. And you can go to um, uh, examples of First Kings chapter 3. Uh, Deuteronomy 12 talks about this. It says, these are the statutes and the judgments, verse 1, which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. And he goes through Deuteronomy chapter 12 and keeps using this phrase, uh, talking about this dedicated place, right? This is not for you to just do anywhere you want to do, but in this age... Uh, God's design, his plan was for them to, to go to his, his house. Because verse 13, be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place, verse 14, which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command. So that was one problem. The other was the fact that what took, what took place at these sites was usually a form of foreign worship or we've used this phrase before, syncretism, which is just a, com- a combination or a union or an attempted reconciliation of two or more differing or opposing forms of belief or practice. And so we had this, this, this Baal Baal worship. So we had a, this a form of that going on in, in Israel. Uh, and this particular worship, which believed in many gods, mainly associated with elements of nature, uh, involved helping and encouraging the gods to fulfill their obligations to the material world as well as appeasing the gods to make personal life more comfortable. Okay, so 
That's what that worship represented. It was going there. It was, it was encouraging the gods to do the things that they were supposed to be doing. It was appeasing them when they were angry. But essentially, what it was is, if we do these things, then our life will be better. It'll be more comfortable. And so they had bought into this, and they had taken some of the elements of the Mosaic Covenant, but they had taken this pagan practice of Baal worship, and they were sort of bringing those two opposing things together. That's what we mean by syncretism. And these were the things Israel was warned about from the very beginning. Human sacrifice, witchcraft, shrine prostitution, uh, spiritism, religious intermingling, borrowing practices from the Canaanites whose gods would become, scriptures say, would become a snare. Not honoring God as the sovereign king of the world. That's what they were not doing. They were approaching worship as we do this God does that. Like, like we input something and then we expect something in return. We expect God to give us rain when we want rain. We expect God to give us fertility when we want fertility. So they had, had this sort of transactional way of worship. And we do the same thing, right? I mean, we often think of God in that way where we, we do these religious things and think that now God owes it to us to do what we think would make our life better. Right? That is not acknowledging the sovereignty of God, the sovereign king of the universe, sovereign king of creation. But that's, that's the kind of worship that was going on. In fact, no other statement in the Old Testament summarizes both the nature of syncretism and Israel's participation in that more than 2 Kings 17.41. Listen to this. 2 Kings 17.41, So while these nations feared the Lord... Okay, so... Okay, it's, we're going in a good direction, right? Because there's a fear, and some translations say worship of the Lord. While these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. Wait, we're not going in a good direction. <laughs> it's like, it starts out and you're thinking, oh, there's a fear of God, a reverence of God, a worship of God. Yeah, but this is syncretism, right? So what it is, it's an attempt to do that, but at the same exact time, idol worship. Trying to put those together. So this is what was going on and had been going on for some time in Israel. The people going to these high places, practicing this sort of idolatrous worship. And ultimately, this idolatry is adultery against Yahweh God. So we see this linking together of idolatry, adultery, idolatry, adultery. And that adultery piece, again, illustrated through the life of Hosea, right? And his very call to to marry a, a prostitute. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 says, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? <laughs> so it's like, in Jeremiah, he's, he's saying that at one point, Judah, they were looking at Israel, and they should have learned a lesson from Israel. But listen to the way that it describes it. Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. What you expect it to say is that she committed idolatry there, right? Because that's what she is doing. She's going to the high hill to do this syncretistic worship. But it actually says, no, she went there. It was idolatry. Don't make the mistake. That is what it is. But from the Lord's standpoint, it's not just idolatry. It's harlotry, right? It's unfaithfulness to, again, the covenant relationship. Now back to Hosea 4, 4, verse 14. I will not punish your daughters 
when they play the harlot or your brides, again, this could and maybe ought to be daughter in, daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple or cult prostitutes so the people without understanding are, are ruined. Now, it sounds at first like Yahweh's ignoring the sin of these women. What is more likely going on here is the heightening of the responsibility of the men uh, in, in order to focus in on the men's pursuits of these cultic prostitutes. So it's just assigning a higher degree of culpability to them because those who should have been leading in every facet of life were instead taking the lead in the worst kind of way as they pursued these sorts of adulterous worship practices. So this is about a massive failure on the part of male leadership, essentially. So there's this condemnation, these indictments against these religious leaders, right? So he mentions the prophets, he mentions the priests. Now he's saying, listen, the women are guilty of this. The women are involved in this this syncretistic worship. But the men should not have allowed that to happen. It's what I think he's trying to get at here. And because of that, and because of the effect of that on the land, notice the end of verse 14, so the people without understanding are ruined. It's not that they didn't have God's revelation, right? It's that they didn't process it or yield to it, right? So it's not as if the true prophets weren't speaking. It's not as if God did not send his messengers. It's that they don't want to hear that message. They reject that message. They turn to their prophets and to their priests. And then you have this vacuum of leadership that's going on, not only in the religious life of Israel, but even in, you could say, all the way down to home life, right? This massive failure on the part of men. uh, And because of that, we see this calamity. Verse 15, though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. So at least at this point in time, Judah, the southern kingdom, had not gone quite as far down this road as the northern kingdom had. had. But they, were, they would do that in time. Uh, Jeremiah 3 uh, speaks to that, talks about how Israel had gone up and committed this harlotry. But then it says in that chapter, we just mentioned Jeremiah 3 and verse 10, yet in spite of all this, all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. So Judah ultimately didn't learn from, from uh, Israel's sin and their, their example. So uh, we have uh, Judah here, the, the, the danger of Judah being pulled into these things Second half, verse 15, also do not go to Gilgal or go up to Beth-Aven and take the oath as the Lord lives. He's just saying, don't, don't do it. Don't take an oath and use my name when it is all a part of your false worship. She's saying, don't, don't drag my name into this, the Lord is saying. You're committing this faithless worship and then you are taking oaths, right? You're, you're taking my holy name and using it in a profane way. And then he, there's a pun here in verse 15. He has these cities, Gilgal is a place name, and then Beth-Aven is a, is a substitute uh, for Bethel. So originally, Gilgal and Bethel were 
divinely accepted places of true worship, where the patriarch, patriarchs did worship properly, um, and even those that came behind them did that, but these have been turned into centers of syncretistic and blasphemous worship. Gilgal here is mentioned again. We'll come across this in chapter 9, verse 15. All their evil is at Gilgal, it says. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Chapter 12, verse 11. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. So we'll come back to this reference. But with Beth Aven... This would have been a, should have been a knife to the heart for them because Bethel means house of God. Beth Aven means house of evil or house, you say house of wickedness. So this was used as, a, as sort of as a mockery. This, this name Beth Aven, of course, it it'll, again will turn up in, in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, and then again in chapter 10, but listen to chapter 10, verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Aven. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jareb. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. And it was carried away. So this is calf... It was used in this worship, and it was carried off ultimately by the Assyrians from, from Samaria. So the calf, the calf of Beth-Aven was at the site of Bethel, one of these places of worship in the northern kingdom. And what the Lord is saying to Israel is that Bethel has become a house of idolatry. So it should have been the house of God, but it has been, practically speaking, used as a house of wickedness, or you could even say a house of vanity or futility. Verse 16, since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Really a rhetorical question. So if you, if you were in Israel at the time and you were asked this kind of question, you would immediately think to yourself, you know, you, you don't get anywhere with a stubborn cow, right? I mean, these again, these are people in an agrarian society, agricultural society. They understand this, right? They would have maybe even experienced this frustration of dealing with a stubborn cow. And so what's the point? The point is that if throughout their history, their history, Israel was resistant, his question is, would they now follow the great shepherd? I mean, if this has been, if this, if this rebellious sort of stiff-necked attitude has been a part of Israel's history? Is, that, is it likely that they are now going to uh, humbly follow the Lord? Not likely. Again, verse 17, God's assessment of this. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Now, Ephraim is just, a, just a way, an umbrella term for Israel, uh, at least used that way in Hosea to refer to the whole nation. Uh, Ephraim is, is joined to idols. The nation is essentially glued to them. They are bound uh, the idols are bound to them, which leads to this pronouncement, let him alone. Which ought to take you to Romans 1. I mean, when you think about what's going on, what he's saying there, right? Is that God, this is an Old Testament example of Romans 1 and this concept of God giving them over. 
Just saying, I'm going to let them alone. Right? If, they, if, if that's what they want, right? If you want those wicked things, you can have them. But again, be careful of the ricochet. Right? It's coming back. Verse 18. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So they will go after their depravity, but God's judgment will come and it will take a whirlwind, or you might think of it as a tornado, an F5 category tornado. It'll take that to turn them away from their pagan practices to the Lord in true worship. So we'll just we'll stop there. What we'll do next week is we'll talk through some of the implications. I mean, we'll come back. There's a lot of lot of material here. Uh, we'll come back and look at what some of those implications are. But just to leave you with one, thank God that He has saved us from the futility of idolatry. <laughs> I mean, and, and you say, well, I didn't do that. Oh yeah, you did. You know, I talk to people in counseling sometimes. I'll say, you know, I, this concept of that they're worshiping all the time. They're like. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not worshiping all the time. I mean, worship is what I do when I go to church. No, you worship all the time. Even before you were saved, you were worshiping. Okay, you, were worship, you weren't worshiping the true God. You weren't worshiping Jesus Christ, but you were worshiping. In fact, that's exactly when, you think, think just a few weeks ago, Shane preached in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. You remember this, this uh, verse 9. He says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Right? God turned those people in a whirlwind of salvation from pagan idolatry to serve himself, the living and the true God, and that is exactly what has happened to us who know him. If we know the Lord, that's exactly what's happened. God has intervened in our lives. We were worshiping not at Bethel, spiritually speaking. We were worshiping at Beth Aven, the house of iniquity. Worshiping ourselves, worshiping our stuff, demanding that others serve us and bow down to us. And God saved us out of that, right? Reversed our direction, took us out of that, that, that destructive idolatry and turned our hearts so that we would worship him, the living and true God. So we'll leave with that, just, just gratitude to the Lord for his rescue of us uh, out of those things. But again, the danger is still there, right? Even as Christians, we can do this, right? We can get caught up in idolatrous things. And so we'll come back and we'll talk about that and some, of the more, some other of the uh, implications of that.